Hey everyone, I'm Cody, and you are listening to a public church podcast. I hope you enjoy the talk today, and thanks for listening. Man, what a gathering so far. Aren't you glad you came today or are watching today? Wow. So just excited about being able to end summer with baptisms, and just so you know, come back tonight. Summer nights at 6 o'clock, the most important part of summer nights is snow cones. And for all of you guys under 18, we want you to know that snow cones are on us. They are on public church tonight. If you're under 18, that is not Nolan, the public students director. Um, All other student volunteers, though, are good. But um, yeah, so we are just really excited. Hope you guys can come back and be a part of that. And so we're actually finishing summer by ending our series on Colossians, a letter that Paul wrote, and Paul was a leader in the early Jesus movement. He wrote about half the New Testament, and so a question is, how do you end a series on Colossians? Well, we're going to end it by talking about the letter that was delivered with it. So more on that in just a minute, but if this is your first week here, if you've missed a few weeks with summer travel and stuff, we're we're just glad that you're with us today, and we've been walking through this series called A Blueprint for Living. As we just studied Colossians, the, the whole point of this series title is that Colossians is not the blueprint, Jesus is, that Jesus is our blueprint for living. And so in just a moment, we're going to read Colossians 2, 6, and 7 together. We've done that most weeks just because that is um, really like a summary statement. Paul builds up to it, and then he builds off of it, and it reminds us that Jesus is the blueprint. And we're not only talking about it in our gatherings, but our team has put together a Colossians Bible study. And if you haven't done it, we encourage you to do it. Just because we're not talking about Colossians in our gatherings, you can still be reading it on your own. And so just go to our public church app, and it's all based on the SOAP method. And SOAP, there's more details on the Bible study, but SOAP just simply means scripture, observation, application, and prayer. And it's a strategy to help you study the Word. Maybe you've never read the Word. Maybe you don't follow Jesus. We want to do everything we can to equip you to read about Jesus for yourself. And this is a strategy that extends beyond Colossians. So we're excited to finish the series. So Colossians 2, 6, and 7, it's going to be on the screen. And I just want to encourage us to read it together. All right, ready, go. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, You must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. This idea that we we build our lives on Jesus. We're gonna talk about that by looking at the letter that was delivered with Colossians. Now, it could be that there are actually two letters that were delivered with Colossians. It could be that Ephesians was also delivered, but we know for sure that a letter called Philemon was delivered with Colossians. Now, now, who is Philemon about? Well, first, we get introduced to one of the main characters in Colossians chapter 4, verse 9. It says this, that he is coming, that's Tychicus. So Tychicus and this guy, Onesimus, they deliver Colossians and Philemon. So it says, he is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. So in Colossians, we meet Onesimus, and he's introduced to us as a faithful and dear brother. And as we look at this letter called Philemon that was also written, we find out he's also an escaped 
slave. So, so what does it look like to make Jesus our blueprint in a difficult, intensely personal and justice-related issue? Well, thankfully, God gave us this letter called Philemon. And if we look at this letter, it's written to Philemon, who is the former master of Onesimus, who is now an escaped slave. So as we dive into this, we, this is a justice issue. And, and I understand that, that saying justice can be a trigger word for some people. And the reality is, this is a concept that has been created and demonstrated by God. So I want to encourage us to not let culture hijack something that God created and he demonstrated, but, but we want to give you a, a very clear definition of what biblical justice is. When we talk about justice. We're not thinking about any media influences, any outside influences, like what does the word say? So here's a definition for biblical justice. It is this, that we are, it's a movement towards God's original design. Movement towards God's original design. The word movement, we really get that from a lot of places, especially from Amos 5, 24, where the prophet writes, let justice and righteousness roll down like a river, roll like a steady stream. This idea of going back to God's original design tells us where to look for pictures of justice, that we look at the bookends of the Bible. We look to the beginning when God created everything and it was perfect before he messed it up by sinning and before Genesis 3 happened. We look at the end in Revelation to see how God restores everything back to his original design. So when it comes to, to this issue and, and slavery is involved here, we have to understand a, a few things even about slavery then and slavery now. A, slavery now is still a problem. There's human trafficking. We partner with Willoughby Farms to fight slavery in the modern world. We also need to understand that, that this ancient type of slavery is different than the Chattel slavery that was in the Americas, but we still have to ask this question, and, and by different, just to explain, and there's a whole lot here we're not going to get into, but it's not ethnic-based. It's not race-based. It involved people of all types, and, and the reality is sometimes people would even sell themselves into it so that way they could move upward socially. But no matter what form it takes, here's a question. What does the Bible say about slavery? Like, well, why does that question matter? Here, here's why this question should matter intensely to every single one of us. Because everyone in this room that is under 18, everyone that's going to be in college or go to college, at some point it's very likely that you are going to come across an argument that says the Bible condones slavery, therefore the Bible is an out-of-touch, ancient book that should be discarded and we should not build our lives on Jesus or God's word or anything that the Bible says. But like you're going to be handed that. You're, you're, all of us, we're literally one click away from that argument on YouTube. So if we as the church don't step into this, questions like this, not just this question, but questions like this, you know what we're doing to the next generation? We're setting them up to fail. We're setting them up to look to culture and all these different people for answers, these questions, when we have the privilege, the responsibility even, to say, no, here's what God's word says, and here's how you wrestle with what God's word says. So maybe you're here and you don't follow Jesus, and part of the reason is because of questions like this. We invite you into the wrestle. So, so this is huge for us. This is also a deeply personal issue for people who are on the front lines right now battling human trafficking. It's a deeply personal issue for people whose ancestors were in Chattel slavery. And so to start, I just want to read from Dr. Esau McCauley 
reading from him because he's a New Testament scholar and his ancestors were slaves. So this is a personal to him. He's an expert on the New Testament. And here's what he says. On the first read, the Bible does not appear to say all that we want it to say in the way that we want the Bible to say it. Do you feel his honesty there? But keep reading. Here's the crucial part. He even says that he said, and yet this is the crucial part. The Bible says more than enough. Come on, somebody. The Bible says more than enough. That's what Dr. Esau Macaulay wants to tell us. So we could do a whole talk on this, but just real quickly, how do we wrestle with questions like this? Well, first off, we've got to look at the long arc of the biblical narrative. We've got to look at the big story and ask questions like this. How did God design it in the beginning? What is God restoring it to in the end? Was there slavery in the beginning? Were there be slavery when God restores all things back to his original design? The answer is resounding no. We look at the character of God and even the launch of his people, the Israelites, came with the exodus, him freeing them from slavery. (laughs) He's a freedom-loving God when we look at his character. And then we have to dive into the culture and the details. I love that he says on first reading. Because it's not enough just to do the first reading and walk away and, okay, I understand the Bible. we got to dig into it. That's part of this idea of giving you a soap method and saying, man, don't just listen. Read the Bible yourself. So we have to dig into it. And one thing we see is, even as we look at, and you can look these up, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1, Paul talks about slavery. And look, don't stop with the end of chapter three. Do not let the chapter and verse designations mess you up. The conversation continues through chapter four, verse one. And Paul's been criticized for what he writes here. But when we look at the culture, we need to understand that this is labeled a household code. And you know what pagan, secular philosophers that were contemporaries of Paul did when they wrote household codes? They only addressed those at the very bottom. They only addressed wives, children, and slaves. You know what Paul does? Paul addresses husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters. It's incredibly countercultural. In fact, in chapter four, verse one, he says something crazy. He says, hey, masters, guess what? You got a master in heaven. And he makes it super clear that everybody is gonna have to answer to God. What's he establishing? That we are equal and everyone has dignity. So we have to dig into these details and look at the culture to understand this. But look, here's what's beautiful about today. You don't have to take my word for it. In fact, in your seat, you have a side-by-side contrast of something written by a secular voice and a letter written by Paul to Philemon. See, about 70 years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, Pliny the Younger who was a Roman senator, lots of status and clout. He wrote a letter to Sabinianus. That is really difficult to pronounce. I've practiced that. So if I mess it up, I just need to practice it more. But he writes a letter to him about a, a freedman, someone that he had freed but was obviously still dependent upon him. That's what you have on your left. You can Google that. It has been preserved for us. Alongside of that, you have the letter of Philemon. Keep in mind that Onesimus is delivering this back to his former master. So so what does the Bible really say about issues like this? Well, let's just do a compare and contrast. What does a contemporary of Paul say, and what does Paul say? So a lot of reading, but we want to get the feel of this. And you get to take this home with you, so that way you can continue to dive into it. So first, here's what Pliny the Younger, this Roman senator, says. 
Your freedman, whom you lately mentioned to me with displeasure, has been with me and threw himself at my feet with as much submission as he could have fallen at yours. He earnestly requested me with many tears and even with all the eloquence of silent sorrow to intercede for him. In short, he convinced me by his whole behavior that he sincerely repents of his fault. I am persuaded he is thoroughly reformed because he seems deeply sensible of his guilt. I know you were angry with him, and I know too, it is not without reason. But clemency can never exert itself more laudably than when there is most cause for resentment. What a sentence, okay? Uh, Let's just pause and make sure we understand that clemency basically means mercy. Laudably means praiseworthy. He's saying, man, mercy looks really good when you have reasons not to be merciful. In other words, he's saying, hey, Sibeneus, you want a chance to look good? Show mercy. Because you have every reason not to show mercy, this is a chance to improve your clout, to improve your status, to make yourself look good. He says, you once had an affection for this man, and I hope we'll have again. Meanwhile, let me only prevail with you to pardon him. If he should incur your displeasure hereafter, you will have so much the stronger plea and excuse for your anger as you show yourself more merciful to him now. Concede something to his youth, to his tears, and to your own natural mildness of temper. Do not make him uneasy any longer. And I will add, too, do not make yourself so. For a man of your kindness of heart cannot be angry without feeling great uneasiness. I'm afraid, were I to join my entreaties with his, that I should seem rather to compel than request you to forgive him. Yet I will not scruple even to write mine with his, and in so much the stronger terms as I have very sharply and severely reproved him, positively threatening never to interpose again in his behalf. But though it was proper to say this to him in order to make him more fearful of offending, I do not say so to you. I may perhaps again have occasion to entreat you upon his account and again obtain your forgiveness, supposing, I mean, his fault should be such as may become me to intercede for and you to pardon. Farewell. So just three observations from this, from the tone. First off, he re-ingrains the social order. He reaffirms the social order. There's nothing of equality here. In fact, Pliny, the Roman senator, he talks to Sibeneus as if to say, I want you to know I'm over you. I can tell you what to do, but I'm not going to. But remember, I've got this high status. And remember, we both have way more status than this lowly freedman at the very bottom and dregs of society. Nothing about changing the social order, simply re-emphasizing it. Second, we see fear-based behavior modification. Fear-based behavior modification. Hey, I think he's actually repentant. I think he's sorry, so you should forgive him this time because here's what that does. It gives you a weapon. And if he makes a mistake again, you can drop the hammer that you withheld this time, bam, and you can drop the hammer for his new mistake, bam, fear-based. So if you're this, by the way, unnamed, we don't even have the dignity to name this guy. If you're this unnamed freedman, you're living in fear. Okay, I'm forgiven, great, but I gotta walk the line because the moment I mess up, there's multiple hammers that are gonna be dropped on me. So I'm just gonna behave out of fear. And the third thing as we're reading through this is we see an appeal, but it's based on social status and image. Hey, you should forgive him. Why? Because it makes you Look good. You should resolve this issue because it's got to be messing with your tummy, you know. You got to have some tummy aches about this that it's bothering you. Like, 
Do you see it? It's, it's all about, hey, th- this is going to benefit you. This is for you. Do this because it's going to make you look good. Now, I present to you, Paul, the prisoner, writes a letter to Philemon. First off, notice even the first line. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. In Colossians, Paul starts out and says, Paul, an apostle. Here he starts out and says, a prisoner. Why? Because Paul is not going to leverage any status he has. It's not about social status. It's not about who he is. He's saying, man, I'm actually a prisoner right now. And so he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership, I would encourage you to underline or circle that it's huge for this letter, I encourage that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. That's the third reference to Paul being in prison. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brothers, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. A lot of reading there. Why do we read it all? Because the Holy Spirit speaks through the word of God. And there may be something that I don't even say that the Holy Spirit pricks you with and changes your life forever. So I'm gonna pray that that would happen. Holy Spirit, in what is spoken and what is unspoken, would you speak? You are speaking, Holy Spirit. May we be found listening. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I got some feedback from our elders on this talk. And one thing that Randy Gordon said, I'll start with this as we look at the contrasting tone. Now, obviously, they're both similar in the situation. They're both making an appeal, but immediately we see a tone difference. Randy said this, 
For a little exercise, I jotted down how each author refers to himself as well as to others. Paul seems to downplay himself. Prisoner, I'm an old man. Pliny doesn't have that humility. Even more interesting is that from the letter, Pliny seems to be more of a letter to a person that that he views, he's writing to someone that has a higher social status, that they're both talking about someone who has a lower social status. He says, oh my goodness, by the way, Pliny doesn't even give him the dignity of a name. Did you catch that? Just your freedman. There's no name there. So the tone is also very dishonoring. He threw himself at my feet. I've sharply and severely reproved him, threatening to make him more fearful, concede something to his youth. He's just young. Paul, on the other hand, refers to Onesimus as my son, my very heart, very useful to you and me, brother in the Lord, fellow man, very dear to me. He says, I also think it's interesting that Paul mentions no fewer than 10 other individuals in this short little letter, male and female, free and previously at least slave, and who knows how else they were diverse, yet all of them are treated with dignity and respect. So Pliny, he just reingrains the existing social order. You know what Paul does? He introduces a paradigm for a whole new social order, a whole new way of approaching people. You know, it's, it's amazing that he starts out and he says, you know what, I want you to know that I deeply love Philemon. And then he's going to draw this line when he says, I deeply love Philemon and I deeply love Onesimus. See, see the key here, the key word is partnership. Look with me at verse 6. Verse 6, he says, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith. This word partnerships means a, a, a teammate type attitude. That's marked by generosity and sharing that we are in this thing together. Why? Because of the gospel in the faith. He's saying, hey, we need to understand this, that all are equally sinners before God, that all are equally unable to get to God on our own, that all equally need the cross and the death of Jesus to be forgiven of our sins, so we're all equal. So when we follow Jesus, we become partners because of Jesus, that our primary identity is in Christ. And that no matter what else could try to separate us, we are inextricably linked together by the gospel, by Jesus dying and rising again. He said there's a partnership in the faith that may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. That word effective means that the partnership may be working, that it may be moving, effective in deepening our understanding. Here's what Paul wants us to understand. He's reminding us of something Jesus said. Didn't Jesus say that when two or three are gathered in my name that I'm with them? He said, hey, guys, I don't know if you noticed, there's three of us here that we're talking about. Me, Philemon, and Onesimus. If we can unite on this, the gospel is going to have effective power. And this deepening doesn't just mean an understanding mentally. That word understanding also means that we're working it out in our day-to-day lives. That even in a difficult situation like this, a situation that's very personal to everyone involved, I mean, can you imagine being Onesimus walking in? Um, Hello, Philemon. Paul wrote this. Can you imagine being Philemon? You You haven't seen Onesimus and then you get this letter? I mean, this is deeply personal. But in these situations, we still build our lives on Jesus. That as we understand him more and more in this partnership that we have because of Jesus, that every detail of our lives is built on him. 
Because it's the end of that verse, in Christ. And so here's what he does with partnership. He establishes Philemon, we're partners. And then he says, and guess what? I'm also a partner with Onesimus. So guess what? You're my brother, he's my brother. So what does that make you? Brothers. What does that make you? Partners. See, this is built on partnership. Not only that, but instead of an appeal based on improving social status and image, we see an appeal based on love. Look with me at verses eight and nine. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love, an appeal based on love. But who's love? He talks a lot about the fact that he loves Philemon and he loves Onesimus, but, but why does he love both of them and why should they love each other? Because Jesus first loved them. See, in verse 13, he mentions the gospel. Because this isn't a fear-based behavior modification. This is gospel-based transformation. Do you see the difference? He said, hey, everything I'm writing, it's because of the gospel. That's the reason. And if you would, just look with me at verses 18 and 19. He says this, if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Do you know that one of the penalties for being an escaped slave was death? Paul's saying, kill me. Paul's saying, you need money, I'll give you money. Paul's saying, I'm standing in his place because Jesus stood in my place. Because isn't that the cross? See, see, in this, Paul doesn't mention the cross. He just lives it. And we see Paul standing in the middle between Philemon and Onesimus, just like Jesus stood in the middle for us. This transformation that Paul's proposing is based on the gospel. And if we look at it, Paul makes his appeal to tie these together. Verse 17, he says this, so if you consider me a partner... Well, he's already established with their partners. Then welcome him as you would welcome me. In other words, Paul says, Philemon, when Onesimus walks to the door, don't see Onesimus, see Paul. In the same way that Jesus stands in our place, that Jesus took our sins. Paul was stepping into what we call the ministry of reconciliation. If you want to read about this, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. That Jesus reconciles us to God and makes a way for us to be reconciled to each other. And Paul's saying, I'm going to stand in this gap and begin to reconcile two opposing parties together. And then just look with me at this beautiful part of the letter in verses 15 through 17. He says, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. Pause there. Paul is pointing him to the sovereignty of God. He said, look, I can't say for sure what God's been orchestrating, but maybe there's a bigger plan at play. Maybe God is going to use all these things that we could look at and say, man, they're evil. They're really difficult. Maybe God can use all these things and he can bring us together. Verse 16, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. That Onesimus' identity is forever changed because he follows Jesus. He is very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Wow. 
And then look with me at verse 20. Pliny, Pliny's saying, hey man, let's do this thing because it's gonna make you look good. Here's what Paul says. I I do wanna benefit from you, but I wanna benefit from you for Onesimus. (laughs) That's Jesus. That's how Jesus changes everything. In this situation, woven into all of this is the gospel, the story of Jesus. It's the only way that all of this could happen. And so Paul says this thing, so powerful we can't miss it. In verse 21, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. It's debated. As I've researched it, I think what Paul's saying is saying, set him free. I'm confident that you will do even more, that you will be reconciled as brothers, as equal before God, and that you will set him free. What does the Bible say about slavery? I was reading a scholar, and a scholar said this. The Bible and the teachings of Jesus create an atmosphere where slavery has to disappear. Not because of anything we've done, but because of everything Jesus has done. That it's not forgive because, like Pliny said, forgive because he looks remorseful. Paul says, forgive because of the gospel. In fact, Paul says, and if you want anything, like I will stand in his place. And so so what do we do with this? Such a powerful letter. But, But how do we truly build our lives on what Paul is writing here, first for the kids, a family's moment for you all. And I just want to encourage you, if you're a kid and you're thinking, man, where, where in the world does this intersect with my life? If you look at um, the bingo card you guys have, here's what that family's moment looks like for you. It looks like that you would just talk to your mom, your dad, your grandma, or your granddad, and you would just simply talk about a time someone forgave you. How did that make you feel? Like they have that conversation. And then, parents, here's the key. We gotta take it a step further. Because it's not just what someone has done to us, it's about Jesus. The next thing, talk about why Jesus forgives us. And then let's lead our kids to own their faith. Kids, this is a question for you to ask yourself. Is there someone you need to forgive? Because forgiveness flows through this letter. And for all of us, no matter our age, I just want to give us two questions, two questions to wrestle with. And these aren't questions just to sit in here and resolve for a moment. These are ongoing questions just for us to wrestle with so that this letter of Philemon can become practical in our lives. And the first question is this, is there a relationship or situation where you need a new paradigm? In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, Paul says, set your mind on Jesus because you died and you've been raised with Jesus. So what Paul does in this both justice issue and this deeply personal issue, he enters it. And it's like he's coming from left field. Like nobody has thought like Paul at this point. Like like what Paul's doing is he's bringing it from a totally different paradigm, a perspective, a paradigm based on the gospel. Paradigm means our way of thinking. And here's what should happen as we step into deeply personal issues that maybe people want to avoid. As we step in and offer biblical justice, a movement towards God's original design. In those conversations, it should feel like we're bringing a fresh wind. It should feel like, I've never heard that perspective. I've never seen that response. I've never thought like that. Why? Because Jesus is there. 
And, and we're beginning to act like Jesus because we're also thinking like Jesus. So is there a relationship or a situation where you need a new paradigm, where our minds need to be transformed by Jesus? And then the second question, and this one's just hard. Is there a relationship or a situation where you need to stand in the messy middle as a reconciler? Can we pretend like we didn't ask that question? <laughs> I've been wrestling with that. I, 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 I don't know. Maybe you wrestle with that and the answer comes at Thanksgiving. Maybe at Christmas time. Maybe in October when your boss walks down to your office and says something that you never saw coming. I don't know. But Philemon, this letter, invites us to wrestle with that. Because, man, Paul stood in the messy middle. He's got a chance to get hit by both sides, but Jesus stood in the middle for us. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. So perhaps there's a situation where we need to, like Paul, like Jesus, stand there. You know, as public worship comes up, a question that I've asked is, well, what's the end of this? You know, what does Philemon do? We can't know 100%. We can't be pretty certain because in about 110 AD, there was a letter written to the bishop of Ephesus. That word bishop means the leader of the church at Ephesus. Guess what his name was? Onesimus. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Philemon probably set him free. And because of the gospel of Jesus, this guy who was once a slave became the leader in the church of Ephesus. That's something only Jesus could do. So why must we wrestle with questions like this that make us uncomfortable? Because it positions us to begin to think like Jesus, to receive a new paradigm based on the gospel, so then through us and in us, Jesus can do things the only Jesus can do. Nobody could have written this story besides Jesus. He is the only one. He can do that in our lives too. Whether you're five years old or whether you're 80 years old, Jesus is still moving. He's still powerful. The same Jesus that totally transformed this. The same Jesus that led abolitionists like William Wilberforce to begin a movement that ended chattel slavery. The same Jesus that is mobilizing people all over the world to fight human trafficking. The same Jesus that's with you in this deeply personal situation that you don't even want to step into. He's with you. Let's submit to him. Let's surrender to him. Let's defer to him. Let's begin to think like him. Let's anchor our lives in his word and let's let him change us and then change others through us. So we're ending our gathering by singing a song called Authority. Because we don't begin to try to live out Philemon in our own strength. We live it out knowing, Jesus, you're the one that has all authority. And one word from you is all it took to say, light, boom. And it can be one word from him that can bring light in our darkness. And before we sing, we're going to read one more verse. Chapter 1, verses 11. Maybe this is for you. Paul, he's brilliant. He makes a play on words. He said, formerly he was useless to you. You realize the name Onesimus means useful. <laughs> he says before he didn't even live up to his name. He wasn't even helpful when he was with you. 
Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Come on, that's not just Onesimus' story. That's the story of every Jesus follower in the room. That formerly we were useless to God. We were enemies of God because of Jesus. Now we've been reconciled to God and we serve him and follow him. That formerly we were useless to God as we walked in darkness, but now we're useful to God as we walk in light. Formerly we loved to sin. We enjoyed it. And now we still sin, but it's a struggle and we're struggling to overcome come our sin by the power of the resurrection flowing through us. That's his story and that's our story. And if you don't follow Jesus, that can be your story today. That you can say, man, I'm right now, I am useless, but Jesus, you died for me in this useless state and would you change me and make me useful to you and to your work? And if you follow him, that one verse is the gospel and that is reason enough for us to walk out of here and live this out and to sing about the authority of Jesus. So Jesus, and everything in this letter exudes you. Thank you for it. And as we sing this song, I pray that we be reminded of your transforming power, the greatness of your name, the greatness of your words, the greatness of who you are, and just continue to change us. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'd love to connect with you on any of our social media platforms at A Public Church or through our app or website, publicchurch.com. To give towards the vision of Public Church, you can do so through our app or website via PushPay or by texting Public Church in all caps with no space to 77977. Again, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.